Boom! We are back. We're in the studio. I could cry tears of happiness. It's been about two months. I'm sitting next to my co-founder. My name is Andrew Kuhn. We're back. How's everybody doing? Jeff, how's it going? Is this the best day of your life, too? Uh, it's going well, Andrew. How's it going is going great. I'm so happy. I'm so over streaming online, even though I'm sure we're going to do it in the future. But I'm happy to be back. Hope everyone else is having a great day. If this is the first time you're tuning with us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. I just feel like out of place right now. I feel mm-hmm. like my back's not, you know, like we were just doing something about five minutes ago recording with somebody else. And I felt like my back was starting to get a little weak because I haven't had to sit up and stabilize because our chairs don't have back things, you know? Uh-huh. We haven't done this in a while. <laughs> so happy to be back. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening to us on the podcast, a rating and review goes a very long way. We're bringing you guys a ton of content, having a lot of fun doing it. Make sure you check out my Twitter, at Focus Compound. So the best day of the year happened last or last weekend. It was Warren Buffett's Berkshire meeting. Mm-hmm. And he was out there all by himself with Mr. Greg, no Mr. Munger this year. And it was one that I thought was definitely a very interesting meeting. They kept showing the auditorium and it was yeah. just to like <laughs> add perspective that it's literally just him and kudos to him by the way too for not canceling it they probably mm-hmm. could have done it somewhere else but yeah. i'm sure he put down the deposit and didn't want to stiff him you know mm-hmm. especially because he said you know omaha um was going through a tough time he plugged uh the bookworm and stuff yeah. like that and stuff like that but i thought it was a very good meeting and there was a lot of takeaways that i had so I figured we could just talk about it, and we'll do our Q&A probably on Wednesday uh, throughout the week. So if you want to be on the lookout for that, follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. Man, I hope this quality just sounds so good coming through. I, I, I'm just so happy to be back. It's better now. <laughs> I know, right? A <laughs> um, few things that you know really stood out that a lot of people were talking about. Airlines, for mm-hmm. example, they sold airlines. Right. They haven't made any major purchases or any purchases during... Not- not by him. Yeah, he not, said he couldn't, didn't know what they were, so they were probably Ted or Todd. Yeah, and they didn't buy back any of their stock. So they're sitting on a lot of cash. Biggest takeaway from me from that was, wow, Buffett probably isn't as bullish. He gave this hour-long monologue um, you know, just on his thoughts, and he was talking about the depression a lot. Mm-hmm. And you were actually just talking about it before, how when he was born, they didn't know that they were in a depression at the time. He made a point of that, yeah, that the market had already covered 20% after the crash in uh, 29 and then it went on to go, what do you say down 83% from that point? Yeah. From when he was born. Yeah. Um, so it was just, it was just a very good, I thought it was one of the better meetings that they've had in a long time because there wasn't a lot of shareholder questions on, Hmm. you know, personal stuff. It was strictly investing. And of course the personal stuff is important. And I always think very interesting, um, you know, sort of following this Buffett and Munger way. I don't think it's just like a way for investing. It's also, just an appropriate way to take uh, certain qualities and put them in your own life. But it was just given the unprecedented times that we're having right now, I thought it was great that it was pretty much all investing focus. Um, So yeah, that was one of the big things that stuck out to me was the airlines. He's a very, um, you know, in his humility, right? We were talking about that before, how he just said, you know, we made a mistake. And Mm -hmm. once they realized that they made a mistake, they were so quick to dump the position. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I thought that was a great way. I actually wrote down a note about it. I thought that that was a great way of handling a mistake. Um, Because a lot of people, once they own a stock like that or something, then they try to figure out, you know, um, well, is it still a good stock for me to own? Mm -hmm. And like on a totally different uh, thesis or whatever you want to say than what they originally bought into it. He obviously thought that he saw a future of... um, 
tighter supply than there have been in the past, more rational supply mm-hmm. of airline seats into the next few years at least, because you could look into how many planes they were ordering and look in demand. And uh, this disrupted that. So now he, he doesn't see that. And so it's not just about that they're going to need a lot of money now. It's that the industry uh, may change in that it will be oversupplied, which mm-hmm. he wasn't counting on. And that's why he didn't like the airline industry originally, because it used to get oversupplied all the time with, uh, with planes. And now it has that potential again with low load factors, which he mentioned. So it just completely changes his perspective on it because he knew what the supply situation was going to be. And still does, but he didn't expect that demand might drop. I mean, that was not something that people expected that demand could decline and stay down for a few years. He said, we don't know. It could be that it's, that it takes two or three years that we're not back at the levels that we are now. Um, and if that's true, you're getting deliveries to new planes and things. So that means your load factors are low and it means it's totally different than the investment he thought he was making. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was interesting because we've spoken a lot about air cap holdings and airlines and airports on the podcast recently. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you have been continuously hammering is you think that, you know, there's just going to be a massive supply of airplanes, right? And what do you do with them? Like you were just t- joking about on the p- last podcast, when it comes to airports and um, maybe Boeing, for example, they have terrible barriers to exit, yeah. right? What do you do with it? when um you know tough times come so i thought that was interesting to hear him sort of echo that for one part i was like wow he's saying a lot of what jeff's been saying for the past couple of weeks yeah the um i mean you know it's i don't like being this uh negative on something and it's no you've been doing a good job it's it's, uh i said i'm changing you i'm ruining you is what i said actually and it's heartless on the perspective of like the things that will shut down and stuff but the thing is the reason why restaurants potentially can recover faster is because it's not very hard for especially the smaller ones to exit the industry it's really easy to close down restaurant locations it happens all the time even something like supermarkets or something um a fair number of them i don't you know you could easily have one i mean supermarkets are not thing being hit right now but you could easily have one out of 25 that leave the industry each year or something <laughs> and that leaves the better performing ones to pick up more better returns um a lot of people focus on like the growth in an industry or something but it's the growth in uh your business versus making sure that competitors aren't growing you know that fast that that to take up uh all the growth that you'd have in the industry and so it is a big issue in some industries where you don't have um where there are barriers to exit i mean people always talk about with moats barriers to entry but they don't talk about how bad an industry can be when there's barriers to exit and i just don't see i mean these airlines are all going to be propped up by governments or by someone and i don't see that they're going to say um i mean and people are going to want there to be new planes built and stuff just even from an economic perspective because he talked about how important boeing and and, and airbus and stuff are to their economies so everyone's going to want uh everyone's not going to want a big contraction of supply in planes Mm -hmm. but what's going to be needed for the industry to earn good returns is a big contraction of the supply of planes yeah Yeah. sure what did you think about them not repurchasing any shares was that surprising to you it wasn't surprising to me i mean they could have done it there's a lot of individuals that have been involved in the stock saying i'm sure mr buffett is rebuying you know purchasing back stock they said i'm sure their phone is off is ringing off the hook and i'm sure they're purchasing back their own (laughs) stock they have a hundred something billion dollars that they're going to push put to use Wow. And it's just like, boom, 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 nothing. I, I, it doesn't surprise me because one, he doesn't tend, Buffett doesn't tend to do things on a small scale. 
he wants to do uh, he, when he buys back stock or whatever he may buy back a little but his hope is to buy back a lot more i think and to do deals is to do a lot bigger deals the airline thing he bought all the airlines in the industry you know so i don't think that he would ever um try to signal to people you know the confidence or okay we could buy a little bit of our stock because it's not really overpriced even though i don't think it's more underpriced than it was before he just doesn't care about those things you know mm-hmm. so he doesn't do half measures and things i mean he said that so i think that um i was expecting there to be very little activity in buying stocks and very little activity in um buying back stock although i was also expecting there to be very little activity in selling stocks mm-hmm. and i think what we found out is basically just sold airlines mm-hmm. Like I didn't expect them to be dumping other stocks because they were suddenly worried about you yeah. know those things. His default mode is inaction, and then only take action when you're sure about what you're going to do. But when you're not sure, just don't do anything. Mm-hmm. Which is probably a good lesson for a lot of people, right? Yeah, I think so. He talked a lot about the problems that people have even just staying in an index fund or something because he said several times that the virus, uh, just like the virus affects people differently, fear affects people differently. And one of the interesting things he said is he didn't think that he or Charlie uh, Munger ever felt fear financially. And most people probably do quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And so that might lead them to make bad decisions and things. And so he did warn about that when he said, you know, well, it's easy to do when you also have like, you know, $80 billion and <laughs> uh, but 99% of your, even that 1% that's not invested in Berkshire is still a, you know, pretty significant chunk of change. He put 75% of his 75%, I think of his net worth into Geico when he was, uh, let's see, he would have been in his very, very early twenties. Mm-hmm. And, Everyone he talked to in the insurance industry said, don't do it. Uh, Graham thought the stock market was high, as he mentioned then. And Graham would never put that much money into one thing. Mm -hmm. And he had trouble selling Geico to people when he worked as a broker. So I, you know, he's, I don't think that he does feel fear uh, financially. I Mm -hmm. think that's true. Um, And some people do. And do you think that's a gene thing? What do you think that is? Yes. So, like, what, just being rational about it? Having that in your... Uh, I, it, let's, let's, yeah. Let me preface it. You and I have spoken before about okay. this. And you have said, if you own a stock, and let's say you appraise it, just for simple math, let's say you appraise it at $100, mm-hmm. and let's say it drops from, um, you know, $60 to $40, you have literally told me it doesn't bother you in the slightest. As long as you know the facts are still the same and nothing material has changed within the business. And everyone says this, right? Everyone says this until it actually happens and then they, there's a lot of fear that comes into it because capital is involved, you know? It's, like, it's almost like a psychological thing. Some people, they start to be like, it's almost like it takes them back to the childhood. Like, oh, this person told me I would never be the, you know, it pulls right. up all these weird thoughts in a lot of individuals. And I've spoken, yes. you know, but for you, you have told me, you're like, it literally just, it doesn't even, you don't even think about it. On this point, I think my internal feelings are exactly the same as Munger and Buffett, and for whatever reason. And a lot of other people aren't. Um, and I've tried to talk to other people and explain things to them, sometimes knowing that they won't carry out the plan that we agree on. So what do you mean by that? Like literally sit down and say, okay, uh, they say, they'll say, look, I have, you know, uh, we talk about like I, how much I like the book, A Man for All Markets. They'll basically say to me, I have an edge in this thing. I know that, look, I have information, not inside information or something, but I have information that the market is not correctly handling this uh, arbitrage type thing or this litigation thing. Let's say, let's use litigation example. Like they know there's a 95% chance this appeal will be upheld mm-hmm. and the market's clearly valuing it at 50-50. Uh, and, 
they could know that with all their heart and they could be an expert on it. And when we talk about how much they should bet on it and everything, um, they will bet less than they should. And as the market moves down, even though I'll say, you know, it's a random walk, mm-hmm. you know, you shouldn't be, assume, you should be assuming that most price movements are just noise and stuff. They will sell somewhat, they'll trim. And then as the price recovers and starts to go back up, then they'll put back on the position. Yeah. Yeah. When they get like the confirmation. Yeah. I think from watching markets over the years, and I don't have any studies on this, but I think markets just randomly move around like 80% of the time, 85% of the time. And then really the mm-hmm. other percent is when they're actually moving based on, um, you know, news or something that's actionable. Do you think it's the liquidity that makes people think like that? I mean, if you think about people that, for example, invest in real estate and they're not getting daily statements or minute by minute statements or whatever, that they may, their temperament towards it could be different than the way that those individuals could handle stocks. Yeah. I think stocks are a particularly difficult form of investment for people who feel fear financially Mm -hmm. and who are susceptible to contagion, hysteria, whatever you want to call it. I mean, that's sort of the technical term for it. Hysteria of picking up emotions off of other people and stuff of their fear, their Mm -hmm. greed, whatever. Um, I I mean, when you talk about people like uh, Munger or Buffett or or when we talk about me or something, one thing is I don't, um, the attitudes and moods of people around me and stuff is not something that I pick up and that changes my mood a lot. And there are a lot of people who are much more, um, whether it's that they're more extroverted people or whatever, more empathetic people, they definitely are more susceptible to um, having their moods changed by the moods that they're feeling in, in a group in all sorts of ways, and not just um, having to do with, with financial stuff. But it's particularly tough for stocks because of the movements that you see with it. I mean, mm-hmm. w- one thing, I, a lot of people would benefit from owning a bond that doesn't get a quote on it. Yeah. because they know what it'll eventually mature at yeah, and they know like, what their whatever. interest is yeah. and they'll collect on it and having a quote will be a bad thing. I mean, actually back in like the twenties and stuff, there were some people who suggested that saying uh, financial advisors and stuff saying we should put people into things that there isn't an active market for because uh, the, when there became pretty active markets in some bonds, they were concerned about that with people. And, and that's something where we're talking about quotes, every few days or something back mm. then, you know, uh, for those sorts of securities. Now we're talking about something where you can get a quote every minute mm. and react to it. You know, you could say, okay, you say you own airline stocks. You could say, oh, I wonder what will happen to the airlines when Buffett, because uh, Buffett said this. So yeah. let me check the futures and let me be there when it opens, yeah. and, you know. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting is, so his lack of purchases. Mm-hmm. He has Bill Gates' ear. So you know he's probably right. sourcing a lot of his information from somebody that, is spending billions of dollars to fight this is probably one of the most in the know individuals that's in Buffett's circle Mm -hmm. to the pandemic. Um, And the vast majority of companies that he owns, right? Both through companies that they own. And, you know, Greg was saying that one of the businesses they own has owns seven or I'm sorry, owns 90 other businesses. I mean, so think about the vast majority of information, sales reports, et cetera, that he's able to draw from, what day by day Mm -hmm. um so i just thought that was a pretty interesting i don't want to say it's like a tell but you could see where his i guess lack of bullishness could be and i don't want to say lack of bullishness but i didn't i actually i don't want to say flat out bearishness but Mm -hmm. it's definitely lack of bullishness is what i would say at least in the near term 
but it, it seems like it's really a lot of, like a I don't we don't know right now. So that's why he's just kind of doing nothing. Yeah, he doesn't know the outcome. And he he's said that several times. Um, he you know he said that about a lot of things. Even when he talked about the Fed, he said the Fed doesn't know. I don't know whether they'll be. Um, you know, basically easy access to credit and stuff in three months, six months, nine months. There is now, that's what we know, mm-hmm. but no one knows that and no one can know that. And even said, you know, the Fed can't know that. And, you know, that's true. So um, I think he's prepared for a lot of different things. That's what he talked about. He talked about the option and value of money. Um, and he also wants to probably make sure that he's running things a little more conservatively in terms of uh, Berkshire's balance sheet and stuff. Well, it's nice to see that they didn't, if I was a Berkshire holder, shareholder, it'd be, I would want to know if they had some sort of tail risk from pandemics. Yeah, I, did, I they, thought that was don't. very unlikely just because of the way. Yeah. I mean, the media stuff reports on it almost like... Um, he int- said the way, the time to write pandemic risk is after a pandemic ends. Yeah, that, <laughs> you know? that's definitely true, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, but like things like business interruption stuff, I know people want to have that covered, but mm-hmm. that's specific, I mean, that's very clearly not covered. He said there is one insurer, I don't know which insurer he was referring to, that um, had written business in a way that uh, was not the standard language and so could be exposed to business interruption stuff. But no, I never thought that the insurance industry would be majorly affected by... Um, the virus directly, I guess is the thing. However, what he did say, which is absolutely true, is there'll be a ton of litigation, whether um, it, it has much merit or not. Mm-hmm. And that'll be true for all sorts of things. Um, and, and he also mentioned like non-payment and stuff, which is a big deal for auto insurers, that there'll be more people not paying and that they're basically covering people who aren't paying. And, you know, we'll see what happens there. But um, he mentioned that uninsured drivers are a lot riskier, but that may not be true if these people had usually been paying and now they're just uninsured. So it'll be a little harder to calculate some risks. Did you think it was funny when he put up his slides? A lot of people were having a lot of fun with that because it's just like, well, he just destroyed McKinsey's business model with all the fancy slides and stuff. And I thought it was also funny when he put up like a YouTube video that has like 800 views. Yes. And Tommy, I was like, yes, there's there's hope for us to have only 800 views on, on YouTube. Um, but he spent a, lo- a long time talking about just like, you know, being, you know, don't bet against America. Yes. Uh, but what's interesting is, so he had that slide, don't bet against America. But the slide before that, I felt like the layout wasn't as good because the slide before that was showing that they didn't, he didn't purchase anything new. You know, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting layout. You know what I'm saying? Right. But I think he was really showing okay, look, over the next 20, 30, 40 years, things tend to work out in this country, the best country in the world. Yeah, I think the thing he wasn't saying, because one thing that really stood out to me was he said, I'm going to show you what we did in April. Because I think he's basically was saying, I feel obligated to show you this because I'm telling you all these things about Buy America. Yeah. But uh, not Buy America. That was in don't 2008 yeah. they, they said that. But um, don't bet against America in the long run. It was a nice political slogan. <laughs> but that... Um, I'm actually wasn't doing anything now. And I think what he reiterated like several times is anything can happen in the short term and it can be very bad and it can seem very bad and it can change people's psyches. Uh, He used that term a lot. And one thing he said that was really interesting was he said, um, you know, after the summer and stuff, if this comes back, I don't know how the public will react to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he talked a lot about the, the, the psyche of the public and like how he also said that this might be causing some people to understandably kind of lose their bearings and stuff and yeah. things like that. And it's something that I wonder about because when you think about like, for instance, retailers now have to be planning for Christmas. So um, what do they do about that? 
you know, uh, do they feel as optimistic mm-hmm. about it as before? Do they feel that they are sure that they'll have a Christmas season that's normal for them? Now, Amazon may feel that they will, mm-hmm. but you know, um, most sales aren't Amazon and, or do they kind of hedge their bets or whatever? They can try to get insurance for different things, but it's unlikely that they'll get it at a reasonable rate. Um, so what do they do? You know, cause he said things like, you know, look, we're never going to sell our Easter candy. At yeah. Seas. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we've got chocolate bunnies yeah. and stuff, but they're not good for <laughs> yeah. years. So, yeah. um, and that's true for, uh, it's true for some businesses. There, there's stuff that's just, you know, they, they have the inventory for it and stuff and it's just, and not going to be sold. And there's going to be a bunch of liquidation of inventory in certain industries. I mean, it's not even not stuff that's super obvious. Like, um, so, you know, candy goes bad and it's seasonal and stuff, but fashion things and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, it's what they plan for a spring. They can't just sell and fall and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. So what was your biggest takeaway from the meeting? Um, my biggest takeaway from the meeting was that he sees a really wide range of possibilities. He sees the thing that he's most concerned about would be the sort of knock on effects or whatever of the group psychology or whatever of how people will react to these things if they happen again intermittently or whatever not that he has this wide range of fears about how many people will die from the virus and things like that but what happens if you have to shut things down again at some point how do people react how do businesses react and the thing that he really brought up a lot was how the uh, great depression warped people's minds mm. so that one of the smartest people that he knows mm-hmm. ben graham said the market was expensive in the early 1950s when really it wasn't that expensive but that people just believe that if the market got back to where it was 25 years earlier um that was something crazy and so i think in a sense i think he was warning um the psychology of people can swing so much more than is justified Mm -hmm. and that might mean people are too optimistic now and you might be preparing them for the possibility that there'll be a time when everyone around you is too pessimistic but keep betting in the long run on america and stuff so i think he was saying you know people's emotions swing one way or the other for long periods of times uh that doesn't have much bearing on the actually what's happening in the long run in stocks i wonder if we'll see some big deals come through soon I am very. I mean, he said we'd like to do right a thirty, forty billion dollar deal if they get the opportunity. You know. Yeah, absolutely. But it's incredibly easy to borrow money, and yeah. it's been surprisingly and that's the thing, easy with to the government equity. too, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I mean, a lot of people probably didn't go to Berkshire because the government was effectively helping out businesses and, and stuff. And the per- the perception was that they would be there and stuff. But but even things like, um, I mean, Boeing was able to. I mean raise an incredible amount of money mm-hmm. and uh, in, from the private sector. So that's really surprising. I mean, we talked a little bit about um, Carnival and stuff. Carnival was able to raise a lot of money um, in, in some bonds that, you know, that's the stuff that's really impressive. When they're able to issue a bunch of stock at low prices, you know, that's a little more understandable because there's potentially a very big upside. There could be a downside that's zero, but mm-hmm. it's much harder to evaluate those and you could be getting a really good deal. On the other hand, it's the bond stuff, the ability to access credit that way, and also just even borrowing from banks and stuff. Mm-hmm. That is the really surprising thing because, you know, Netflix. Netflix stock, is it expensive? Is it not? I don't know. But Or Tesla. I don't know. But if you lend them money, yeah. you just get your principal back plus the interest in the best case scenario. Sure. So if there's a lot of uncertainty about how big the company gets and how successful it is, you know, 
that matters a lot to the common shareholders, but it, it doesn't matter to the people lending the money. So it is sometimes surprising when some companies, you know, companies like Boeing and Carnival and stuff are able to raise such large amounts of money at fixed rates um, that don't involve conversion and stuff like that. I mean, some of that was convertible uh, and some of it was common stock with, with Carnival, but a ton of it wasn't. And, you know, all you get back is your, um, your principal and your, your 12% a year. If you were a Berkshire shareholder, what would you be thinking? Do you think feel comfortable um, buy more? Hold on, I mean, because like the mm. perception. Somebody emailed me, or I'm sorry, someone tweeted to me. She said, "I've been Dallas lady. At mm. least that's what it says in her bio um, that she's been holding Berkshire for 45 years." Okay, I'm like, wow, that's that's been a good good win <laughs> yeah. for you. And she said, "It's been great, but at some point, dot dot dot." hinting towards when is it time to you know move on and my response to her was you're still in good hands Mm -hmm. and you may not get as you know filthy rich from holding berkshire but you're going to stay rich and you're going to continue to make money yeah so what would your thoughts be yes i don't think berkshire is exceptionally cheap now i don't like like buffett said i think that the value is not very different from when uh it the fact that it's down however much it's down hasn't really made it more attractive because intrinsic value has declined by Mm -hmm. a similar amount but um i don't think it's a great moment necessarily to buy berkshire but i do think that the only issue you really have is the size of their um capital base that is the thing that worries me about, it, and it's the thing that is a long-term drag, and they have to do something about. They can't continue to deploy as much money as they've been piling up, mm-hmm. and so they have to figure out a way either to buy back a lot of stock, or to pay a dividend, or to do some more complicated yeah. way of distributing stuff. Um, so I think that's the biggest drag that they have. But to be fair, if things got cheap, they could deploy a lot of it. Um, it's just that the problem with creep back up again pretty fast so like people talk about the successors or whatever yeah I, I i don't worry as much about that i think that they'll have pretty good successors it's just that no one can allocate um the amount of free cash flow that they'll have coming in every year i mean he said um, under almost any circumstance we're still going to generate cash this year and that mm-hmm. you know the cash file is going to go up overall at berkshire so i think that it's a better time now than it's been at some past times versus the S&P. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily in absolute terms is that great, but on relative terms, I think their odds of being the S&P are better now than they were in uh, a lot of the recent periods. But uh, in the long run, what I'd like them to figure out is there's just some amount of capital that's too much. Mm-hmm. And so how do we actually put a lot back? That probably will come after Buffett, that there'll be a decision about that um, to make it more manageable. You know, mm-hmm. Because like an insurance company or something, has a certain ratio of, of premiums to, to statutory surplus or whatever. And that's what they aim for. And when they exceed that, they pay it out. You know, a bank doesn't want to have, uh, you know, their leverage ratio drop to five instead of 10 or something, if that's what they're targeting. So there is some level at which you just have to say the holding the cash and stuff is fine. If it was a hundred million in cash, if Berkshire was, you know, um, a thousand times smaller, the balance sheet they have and stuff would be wonderful and they'd be easily able to deploy it. The problem is it's really hard to find deals that are a thousand times bigger, you know? I mean, when we talk about some of the distressed companies and stuff, right? So they could do a deal with Carnival, mm-hmm. but they can't do a deal with Dave & Buster's. Yeah. They actually, Dave & Buster's issued uh, more stock today. Yeah. They did an at-the-market offering. Yeah. So, I mean, Berkshire didn't get super rich on things of this size, sure. generally, yeah. what they'll have to do. So they'll have to do things that are bigger. And just if you look at 
whether it's back tests of stock things or just what people know about it or whatever, it is very difficult to do as well in very big stocks and very big deals as it is with very small stocks and mm-hmm. small sums of money. And he even said that. He said, you know, the idea that someone's going to outperform with like billions of dollars, don't yeah. believe that. He said there's some people who can outperform with very small amounts of money, but then they'll get too much money coming in and then they won't outperform anymore, mm-hmm. you know? And in a sense, he's describing Berkshire, mm-hmm. that, that risk, you know? So I don't think there are any... Uh, that he's lost anything in terms of skills. I just think that when every time you increase tenfold or something, it gets a lot harder. So the only thing longer term is what you do about that, like buybacks and dividends, Mm -hmm. Um, just in a way of getting rid of capital, bringing it down to manageable level. Uh, That's the only thing that I think they really have to do. But my guess is that's not a decision they really have to make uh, until after Buffett and Munger, unless if the stock gets very cheap, They will buy back huge amounts of time. Yeah, Yeah, they would do that. But that's something like it would have to stay cheap for a few years. Mm -hmm. But if it stayed cheap for a few years, they could buy back huge amounts over three years or something if that happened. Like he laid out the Great Depression type thing. Yeah. If anything like that happened in terms of huge stock declines, and not just that, like it did in the 70s or like it did in in, um, other times, then I think that they would buy back a ton of stock and that would help fix the problem. But as you buy back oper- as you buy operating companies and stuff, you just produce so much free cash flow. So that's sure. been my concern for a long time is that just the size. And they're very clear about that. Mm-hmm. It's very clear that we yeah. cannot do possibly as well at this size. Um, but, you know, to some extent, it's a problem that a lot of the S&P 500 type companies have. It's just, you know, they have they pay out more in dividends. Sure. And stuff. So they got to figure out something about that. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself on our homecoming episode back together filming this we hope everyone is uh has enjoyed the content lately when we really thank everybody for bearing with us when we were streaming over the internet if you're listening on youtube hit that subscribe button thumbs this video up and of course if you're listening on the podcast side a rating and review goes a very long way i'll thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you in the next podcast